0: Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is now open according to law. God save the United States in this honorable court.
1: Thanks, Pam. Welcome to our virtual Fifth Circuit, present uh, your presentations today. Uh, I'm guessing both of you in back in Texas not affected by Hurricane Ida, regardless you may have your own stresses over there but we do the best we can handling it this way but we'll see how soon we get back to new orleans we just have the one case today uh state of texas versus united states and a lot of agents thereof uh, each of you have and uh probably argued in front of us before though i don't know if i've had that that pleasure we'll start with the united states Sarah Harrington, Department of Justice.
0: Thank you, Judge Southwick. May it please the court. Sarah Harrington for the federal defendants.
1: Could I hold hold off just a minute? I'm getting a message on my computer, meeting being recorded. Do I do something to get rid of it?
0: I think you have to push continue. I did. The
2: board, the board got it.
1: I don't usually see that. I was wondering if something, I didn't want to hit continue and have something bizarre happen. All right, uh, sorry, you still have you only lost four seconds. You can return. I'm okay
0: with, I'm okay with that. And I do want to extend my um, sympathies to you and your families who have been affected by Hurricane Ida. I hope everybody's okay. Good. Um, so, the United States respectfully requests that this court enter a stay pending appeal of the district court's aggressive and intrusive injunction. At its core, this is a case about enforcement discretion and, and non enforcement discretion. And the Supreme Court has made clear that the Constitution affords non-enforcement discretion to the executive, particularly in the immigration context. Neither the district court nor the plaintiff states seriously contest that DHS cannot possibly detain every non-citizen who is removable or every non-citizen even who falls within Section 1226C or Section 1231A2.
1: Is Is there anything in the affidavits or either from your side or from Texas, Louisiana? That would indicate what the numbers are insofar as the effect of these guidelines. I know that uh, the other side argues that, w- that we shouldn't just look at trade-offs. But there's been this overwhelming number of uh, potential detentions. Is there any, any evidence here about what the guidance does versus not having the guidance?
0: There is some evidence. Thank you for that question, Judge Southwick. So the first is that um, I I sort of have a couple of data points for you. ICE has been able to deploy 300 additional agents to assist state and local governments with the recent influx of um, people trying to cross the border at the Southwest border. Um, If the district court has its way or if this plaintiff states have its way, presumably ICE would have to pull those agents off the border to go after people who have final orders of removal, whether or not they have any criminal history at all. Well, now, Council, actually-
1: let, me, let me just point you a little bit different direction. One of your affidavits, I think, Ms. Berg talks about 200,000 people uh, detained, stopped, something at the border in July. It seems to me. What we're talking about, in large part, anyway, are are uh, detainees, uh, people who either have been uh, arrested by the by state local officials or are in ICE custody, uh, and what's to happen to them when they stop serving whatever sentence. Is there anything on those numbers uh, and how this guidance affects releasing as, as judge, uh, uh, district judge said in his opinion, 68 detainer, people on detainers are released and that hadn't happened in the previous administration.
0: So or the not, evidence, was, on,
1: not those sorts of numbers.
0: Okay. Thank you. The evidence on that is not well developed. The, um, the affidavits from the states didn't provide sufficient detail for the United States to verify. Um, sort of what was going on with those detainers, but I can tell you just about the types of people who've been arrested. If you look at the six month period between February and July of 2021, there were approximately 26,000 arrests. And of those people, 20% had committed aggravated felonies, had aggravated felony convictions. If you look at the same period from the year before, there were 39,000 arrests, but only 8% of those people had aggravated felony convictions. And in actual numbers, that's about a little more than 2000 additional people under the priorities with aggravated felony arrests who were arrested. Um, And so, you know, if you have to understand that we're operating against this background where there are not sufficient resources to, to detain and remove the millions of people who are removable. And so every administration has had to make decisions about how it's going to use its scarce resources what types of populations of removable non-citizens it's going to target for detention and removal? Under okay. this, ad-
1: thank you. You have a lot to cover. I want you to leave the numbers and, and move on.
0: Okay, but but this is I mean I think this is important ground to talk about enforcement discretion, right? So the states argue that the APA creates a presumption of review of, of a judicial review of agency action, and that's true with respect to many types of final agency action. But the opposite presumption applies when you're talking about enforcement and non enforcement discretion decisions. The APA says that decisions that are committed to agency discretion by law are not reviewable under the APA and enforcement and non enforcement discretions are sort of the quintessential type of decision that's committed to agency discretion by law. Again, here we're operating in, operating in an environment where it is literally impossible to detain and remove everyone who is removable. And so every administration has had to, including this one, make decisions about how it's going to prioritize its scarce resources. Well,
1: counsel, one of the things that strikes me about this case, it, it puts it in, in the, at least a different look to it, though perhaps you're saying the effect's the same, is that in essence, at least from the state's viewpoint. Uh, The federal government has taken what Congress has said are mandatory detentions and removal and identified, I'll just pick a number, three of them uh, that actually will be enforced and the rest we're not really going to deal with uh, at this time. It's like uh, announcing, it's the formality of it that's part of the problem, it seems to me. We're announcing that we're going to, I'll use some harsh words that you'll push back on, we're going to ignore what Congress says as to some of these uh if, take castle rock which you seem to like to some extent it's as if the police chief of castle rock in colorado says oh, we're not going to mess with domestic violence we're going to deal with more serious crime so before you arrest anybody for domestic violence come to me we got to talk about it even if you encounter them out on the street um, what do you say to that uh, i'm off base
0: well so first the priorities don't prohibit the detention or removable of people who fall. Follow- presumptively outside the categories. So it's not as if we're saying we're going to refuse to enforce other provisions of law. But I this think- it's fair to
1: say that it's very hard for an agent to be authorized to, you got to get approval, pre-approval if you know about these folks, and if you encounter them outside uh, that you're not, it seems to be entitled to detain them unless you have this pre-approval.
0: So I think there's no evidence that that's a difficult process. Uh, I think, but you know, it has been-
1: evidence, But why don't you keep moving?
0: all right, well, you mentioned Castle Rock and there, Justice Scalia, we do like that case because he explained that when a statute uses the word shall, when it's talking about enforcement, it doesn't, it's not mandatory that there is this background principle of enforcement discretion and non-enforcement discretion. And more recent cases from the Supreme Court, including Arizona, United States versus Arizona, confirms that that discretion, enforcement discretion is particularly potent in the immigration context.
3: Ms. Harrington, I have, a, I have a question about the scope of your argument. I understand a main thrust of your argument is that, well, these statutes are directed at detention, so they don't require the government to initiate removal proceedings. That's within the government's discretion, who to initiate removal proceedings against. But what's the government's position on when you do initiate a removal proceeding for someone who falls within 1226C, then do you think you have discretion on detention or is detention then mandatory?
0: So the the way DHS operates is that once they initiate removal proceedings and decide to make an arrest of someone under 1226C, then they do detain that person. Um, Now, I don't wanna commit that it's true for every single person, there's a lot of moving pieces, but that is the operational sort of um, instructions that they operate under.
3: So there are not people who are in removal proceedings who fall within 1226C who under this guidance um or these memos are are out on the street
0: so again I don't want to say there's nobody because mistakes happen but that is not sort of the structure policy though it's not right that's not the structure of the of the priorities so your position
3: is this just has to do with the, the discretion is relates to when the government has to initiate the removal proceeding in the first place
0: right and again you know I think the the sort of statutory scheme acknowledges that Congress expects the executive to make large-scale discretionary decisions about how it's going to allocate its resources, about which categories of removable non-citizens it's going to focus on because there are millions of them and Congress has never come close to appropriating sufficient funds to actually detain and remove all those people. And you know, Texas conspicuously ignores section 1225 in Louisiana, but th- that's a provision that mandates detention of people who are crossing the border. And one of the priorities here is maintaining border security. Judge Grady, you're about to ask a question. I'm sorry.
2: Well, I have a concern, and perhaps I shouldn't, since nobody else has talked about it. But I have a concern about the status quo. I mean, I think the posture of this case is one where the district court has issued a preliminary injunction, yeah, which suggests to me that they will, that, that the states will be pursuing some permanent injunctions. Is that right?
0: As far as that's my understanding. Now there will be new priorities that come out at the end of the month and so that's going Which to change, could the-,
2: change uh, the policy and procedure
0: correct and All presumably right. texas will challenge those
2: <laughs> well it's so my cons- i guess my concern is with regard to status quo the preliminary injunction entered by the district court upset the status quo to the extent that when i heard you talk about the numbers six months from 2020 versus six months in 2021 and the difference in the numbers. So obviously the status quo is one where now the new policy is being applied. That's what's been happening. And so the district courts stay, uh, the the district court's preliminary injunction upsets the status quo. Yes. Uh, Should I be concerned about maintaining the status quo pending some final resolution? Because here this is this would be a stay pending a decision by a merits panel on the merits of the appeal. Right. And below, you have a preliminary injunction which precedes a permanent injunction. So nothing's finished any place. That's
0: right, Judge. So, guys, what
2: we- so the status quo is though that the current policy is being applied. And so what I'm asking you is whether or not that, that there is some law that favors maintaining the status quo Until you get some merits, some final review on the merits, at least.
0: I mean, I think that's generally what preliminary injunctive relief is meant to do is maintain the status quo. Now, probably we would differ with the plaintiffs about what status quo you're supposed to look at in this kind of a situation. Our view is that you should, you know, we appreciate the administrative stay that this panel entered. We would like that to be a stay pending appeal. If we prevail on appeal, we hope that the case would be dismissed because we think the, the plaintiffs don't have standing. We think these actions are not reviewable, and so their, their complaints should be dismissed. But be, also, you know, the, there's also the balance of equities. And as I've explained, having the priorities in place, which again, focus on public safety, border security, and national security, having those in place versus having no priorities at all has resulted in the arrest of 2,000, more than 2,000 additional people with aggravated felony convictions in that six month period. And so Texas and Louisiana complain that they're afraid that crime is going to go up with the priorities in place. But in fact, all the evidence points in the opposite direction. And in the meantime, we are also securing the border and trying to prevent an influx of people. If we really have to focus our energy on detaining and removing everyone who's covered by 1226C and 1231A2, we're going to have to pull agents off the border in the Rio Grande Valley and El Paso. Texas hasn't really spoken to that, but I imagine that's not what they want to happen, but that would Um, be the
1: inevitable. Let me ask you about that. It seems to me that there's a reality here that the evidence seems to support, though the evidence is preliminary stage, and we're not talking about everybody being detained this these categories, but what we're talking about is it's not an affirmative injunction. It's one of the things that, that the judge made clear is saying that you cannot be following these uh, formal guidance that uh, has been promulgated. So it seems to me uh, one of my questions on irreparable injury to the extent you argue uh, we're going to have to move all our assets around and start detaining everybody subject to 1226, 1231, I don't think that's the reality. Uh, you're still going to be subject to the numbers that numbers problem that, you, that you've addressed. So tell me, what is a fair assessment of the difference between the world with the stay that, uh, that you want of the plenary injunction and the world without the stay?
0: So the world, it's true that the district court clarified in response to our request for a stay that, they, that we have not been ordered to detain or remove any particular people, but it is very clear that the injunction prevents us, as you say, from using the priorities. And so we would have to operate in an environment where there are no priorities.
1: Well, there are no formal priorities from Ohio, but I would imagine out there on the border and other places where this would have effect, there are some sort of prioritization going on now
0: well i mean there is not because the priorities are in place i guess i would say two things to that first the logic of the district court's decision is that if we do adopt new priorities we would have to prioritize detaining and removing everyone in 1226c and 1231 12 uh, a2 before we could before we could go after anybody else that is the logic of the district court's decision Um, But second, having kind of informal secret priorities at a lower level isn't the kind of thing that should, you know, that's not really in service of good government and… But we're talking about irreparable injury.
1: I'm not talking about what the outcome of this case is, just the irreparable injury that we need to find in order uh, to stop the preliminary injunction long term.
0: Right. So it's a, I mean, it's a threat to public safety. If you look at, if you think, go back to the numbers that you asked about, that I talked about the six-month period from this year to last year, the priority scheme that was in place a year ago basically prioritized everyone, which is sort of similar to an an environment you would be operating in with no priority scheme. And that system compared to what we have now meant 2,000 fewer people on a six-month period with aggravated felony convictions who were arrested. Um, And so to the extent we have evidence of the actual effects on public safety, I think that's a serious, that's serious evidence that it is helping public safety. We also, again, have more people at the border trying to stem the flow of people coming across the border, which has increased rapidly in the last year or two. Um, and all of that, you know, inert to the benefit of, of plaintiffs like, you know, Texas and Louisiana.
1: Let me ask you about this. We just had this one argument today. Um, I think we may have a little extra time to extent we need it. What are the possibility of uh, staying the injunction, but just outside of Texas and Louisiana, to make it a limited injunction. In other words, uh, to Texas and Louisiana, uh, but have it have no effect outside. And so we would not uh, so stay the nationwide effect of it.
0: So that that would be preferable to a nationwide injunction. I don't want to try to talk you out of that, but I think staying the injunction altogether is preferable to that um, for some other the reasons I've given. When I mean, you make
1: a DAPA case, uh, certainly uh, there may be a lot of DAPA cases and a lot of Texas versus we need Texas versus non-states case, the 2015 Jerry Smith opinion that did talk about nationwide and array for nationwide injunctions in that case. Is this distinguishable?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's a hard case for us, I'm going to be honest about that. And, um, you know, we generally think that nationwide injunctions are not appropriate we understand this court's precedent saying that they might be more appropriate in in the immigration context than not. Um, You know, here where we're not being uh, enjoined to do anything affirmative, maybe that's a context in which um, you could just have a limited injunction to to Texas and Louisiana. But again, I think that staying, um, not staying the injunction, having injunction in place is more likely to create the kind of harms that Texas and Louisiana are pointing to because it would prevent the agencies from really focusing on public safety, border security, and national security. And it's that focus that's going to.
3: Well, the, the DAPA case certainly says that, especially in the immigration context, a nationwide injunction may be appropriate. Um, but you know, the district court here expressed a lot of doubt about the propriety of, of nationwide injunctions generally. But then he seemed to think that, as I read it, that the DAPA case required him to impose one here, whereas injunctions and especially their scope are always a matter of equitable discretion. Um, so I, I wonder if, um, I mean, do you read the DAPA case as saying you have to, once there's a violation, impose a nationwide injunction in, in immigration cases or just that courts have that discretion?
0: Oh, just the latter. Thank you, Judge Costa, for that question. I think the DAPA case suggests that courts have the discretion to do that if they want to and that maybe that discretion is greater in an immigration case than in a different type of case, but it's certainly not mandatory.
3: Speaking of the nationwide injunctions, um, and I know we're over, is is it okay to ask a few questions, Judge Southerland? Please, uh,
1: Uh, we have extra time today, I think.
3: Um, On the nationwide injunction issue, I saw that similar cases to this one were brought in Arizona and Florida, both were dismissed and they're now being appealed by the states in those cases. Are there any other pending cases out there and challenging this enforcement policy?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I'm, I think there may be one more, but I, um, I can, if the court wants, I can get back to you in rebuttal about that. I'll ask my team, but, um, it's, it's not coming to me, um, right now. Um, but as you suggest, those, those two cases were dismissed, Arizona and Montana who are co-plaintiffs asked for an injunction pending appeal that was denied recently by the Ninth Circuit. Um, so, you know, we think the proper disposition of this case is also that the case should be dismissed because the priorities are not reviewable and because the states have no standing.
3: Well, one final question. I know you, the government's brief talks about other administrations have had enforcement priorities, similar memos. Um, can you just talk a little bit about those and, um, and what classes they prioritized or didn't prioritize classes of, of immigrants?
0: Sure. So the, um, the last administration, the Trump administration, their priorities basically said that they're going to prioritize everyone who's removable. And so, uh, you know, query whether that's very different from having no priorities. You know, I mean, I think they meant it; they wanted to go after everybody, but um, they didn't sort of put certain categories above other categories. Um, In the Obama administration, there were various different iterations of priorities memos. They targeted similar categories to what what this administration is targeting. They're trying to go after public safety, national security, and border security. Um, And so, uh, you know, there's sort of some differences at the margins, but those are basically the same types of priorities that we are pursuing here. And again, I think it's inherent in the system that there has to be some sort of prioritization, given the lack of sufficient funds or physical or personnel capacity to actually detain and remove everybody who's removable. Any other
1: questions, gentlemen? All right, Mr. Wilson, I don't think you need to be worried about your time. You may get some extra as well. We'll hear from you.
4: Thank you very much, Your Honor. Um, may it please the court. I'd like to begin um, with the statutes at issue here, um, 1226C and 1231A2. Um, I'd like to begin there because I think um, both the text the text of the statute, the structure of the statutes, um, and also the way the Supreme Court has interpreted these statutes require show that they're mandatory. Um, first, the statutes both say shall. Um, the Supreme Court has recognized over and over again that um, shall at least usually connotes a mandatory requirement um second to talk about the structure of the statutes Um, if if shall doesn't mean must in 1226 the structure of the statute really doesn't make any sense we've got 1220 1226a which says may the um the attorney general now dhs may detain people um 1226c mr wilson why doesn't
3: all these differences you're you're making which i I understand there's they make sense based on the text and structure But why doesn't that just go to whether someone has to be detained once they're in a removal proceeding so someone who's within who fits 1226c has to be detained it's mandatory someone in some of the other sections it's discretionary whether they're um, actually detained once the removal proceeding is initiated but why does that require the initiation of the removal proceeding as opposed to determining their detention status once they're in a removal proceeding, um,
4: Your Honor, 1226 A at least specifically speaks to um, may may detain pending that determination. Um, I think twelve I think twelve twenty six C should be read exactly the same way. Um, it, it and it, and in any event, Your Honor, uh, as Judge Southwood noted, and as the District Court uh, made extremely clear, um, this this injunction doesn't require. The district court, or excuse me, the United States, to uh, detain, detain, or remove, or, or institute removal proceedings against anyone. What it says is that the uh, memoranda issued in this in this case are contrary to law, or arbitrary and capricious, or procedurally invalid. It's, it's. But, but I guess I'm, I'm trying to
3: understand the state's position. I mean, take someone, um, someone who's released from a, a state prison or county jail who has a, a drug conviction. Um, does not fall within the enforcement priorities in the memo. Is it the st- I thought it's the state's position that the federal government must institute removal proceedings against that alien who has a drug conviction, and, and then obviously must detain him. Is that not your position?
4: You are. Right. I think we certainly asked for the district court to to enter an affirmative injunction. The district court was very clear that it wasn't. But um, the district court was very clear that it was doing was enjoining these specific memoranda um you know to 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 sort of talk about some of the folks who have been who have been released here and we've got you know people who under i think any reasonable definition of public safety with these serious threats to public safety um, people who've been arrested with more than 50 pounds of marijuana uh, people a, a person in louisiana who's required to register as a sex offender um, we're, we're not we're not saying um here on appeal that the that the that the united states has to uh, institute removal proceedings against anyone. What we're saying is that the district court correctly determined that the memoranda uh,
3: violated the APA in several respects. I guess I'm trying to figure out what the practical meaning of all this is then, because the government says it agrees that once it brings a removal proceeding against someone who fits within 1226C, so these these people who have serious drug convictions in the past, that it does have to detain them. So, and you're saying, well, we're, we're not requiring them to start removal proceedings that's still within their discretion that they've always had so i guess i'm i don't know it seems kind of academic if this if that's the the distinction well uh, two two points runner
4: um first I'm, I'm i think that's what the district court said when it issued its negative injunction um second i i, I just i just don't think we have we I just don't think it's in this case as to whether the, the United States is required or not required to institute removal proceedings against anyone. Um, you know, that would be a that what we have here is an APA challenge to the Miranda. Um, I think it would be a very different case if what we if what we showed up and said was you know the government must detain must institute removal proceedings against certain individuals.
3: But you know, well, so I thought also, that's the whole linchpin of Judge Tipton's order because on this issue of whether this is committed to agency discretion the feds are saying who who we bring removal proceedings against is committed to agency discretion and our memo says these are the three categories we prioritize and judge tipton says well no there's no there's no enforcement discretion on this because these statutes are mandatory so it seems to me the argument for you has to be not that they're not just about detention but the statutes are also guide the ex or limit the exercise of discretion and who is, is being pursued in removal proceedings in the first place
4: um no no your honor I, I don't think that's right um, the statutes speak very clearly to who must be detained and again 1226 a um, talks about detaining pursuant to making that decision um, so we we think under under 1231 a 2 and 1226c the government does not have any discretion not to not to detain um, what they what they do after that, Your Honor, I think would be a would be a separate case that's not. I don't think I don't think we really we really briefed that in, in detail. We didn't bring claims on that to that regard.
1: Well, Mr. Wilson, let me ask you where that takes us. The Supreme Court has has told us recently that people cannot be held in pre removal detention indefinitely. It seems to me your argument is suggesting everyone has to be detained subject to this subject to the mandatory language. And therefore, legally, they must be processed for removal. It's not really discretionary at that point. because At least they have to be released from detention if it if it
4: becomes unduly prolonged six months as a as a rule of thumb. Any reaction to that? Um, you you know, your honor, it's it's certainly it's certainly right that other Supreme Court precedent may sort of downstream require other actions. Um, again, I. I um, don't think that the requirement to detain is what, or excuse me, the requirement to remove is what's what's really going on in this case. Um, and any in any event, your Honor, I would I would also say that uh, past sort of determining that this was contrary to law, um, or the memoranda were contrary to law, the district court also determined that they were arbitrary capricious and procedurally invalid. Um, and one of the one of the hallmarks of APA review um, under the Chenery principle is we we evaluate what the agency did for the reasons the agency gave. So um, there there's, there's certainly other, the district court made other holdings that I don't think really turn on sort of this the, this distinction in any event. Uh,
2: Mr. Wilson, you referred to this as a, a negative injunction. But on page 158 of the district court's opinion and order, there were four different items where the court the district court said to ensure compliance with this preliminary injunction the court further orders the following and then there are four things which it orders the government to do now I understand there has been some I guess explanation of what what that means, but it sounds to me like that's a affir- you got to take some affirmative steps which which sounds to me like a positive injunction so, does the government have to do those things now or not,
4: um, Your Honor? I would refer the court to the uh, hearing on the stay in the district court and the uh, argument there, and also the orders that the that the district court judge subsequently issued. Um, he made very clear in that hearing that he thought um, that that those were sort of sort of discovery discovery related issues. Um, he expected that the government had that information. Um, and the district the district court
2: judge uh, well discovery is usually done by the parties this is something he's ordering the government to do and my only question is are you uh, is is the government still required to do that under the terms of this order you're referring me to a hearing i appreciate that tell me what he did
4: um what the what the what the district court did and I've, it's either an ecf 90 or 92 um, what the district court did is push those dates off. Said he thought that that was information the government would have, and then also
2: said but the answer is. But I, I, I don't know why you don't want to answer me. It sounds like the answer is the government is required to do it under the terms of his original opinion and order. Is that right? Um, I, I
4: I think under the terms of the preliminary injunction on its face, that's correct. I think. um, in ECF ninety and ninety two, the district court made clear that if the government thought this was particularly burdensome, or the government couldn't comply with this, he was perfectly happy to talk
2: to them about um, about what. About so what he's I'm conducting discovery. Is that what he's doing? Beg pardon, Your Honor. I'm sorry. The judge is conducting the discovery for the parties. You said he's uh, no, doing Honor, the discovery I, matter. I,
4: I think that the I think that the district court judge referred to it as a case management tool. Um, and said he was perfectly open to discussing this with the, with the United States sort of at at further proceedings if it was if it was particularly burdensome or troublesome.
2: All
4: right.
1: Let me ask you, I mean, Mr. Wilson, about your concerns with the the language of, of the guidelines, with of the, the memos. I think there's been an acknowledgement. I'm, I'm I'm not holding you to it. If you tell me otherwise. That there has been in the past uh, a need, if not to prioritize, at least to limit um, by ICE and other enforcement officials the number of people who can be detained, regardless of this language. Um, you can tell me if that's right or wrong, but it seems to me if that's right. The real argument here is the formality of this memo, that it's, it's an announcement, almost an affront to Congress here are your i'll make up a new number here are your 10 categories of people who must be detained and we're announcing only five of them or four of them or three of them are are priorities to us um, some of the others will may snatch up from time to time uh, is that really an unfair way to look at this argument i'm not saying it fails for that reason but is the problem really here that it's formal national guidance that in a way undermines the uh, mandatory nature of what Congress
4: said? Um, your Honor, a couple of responses. Um, first, I, I I don't think that's quite right. I mean, the the United States has certainly asserted in their briefing that there's there's no way they can detain everyone and everyone has you're, you're to- You're fading on. out
1: just a bit, Mr. Wilson. I don't know if our IT people can take care of that or whether it's that you're in. My, my apologies, Your Honor, I'll, I'll try to
4: speak up. Is that better? I need to speak up too, probably, but go ahead. Um, so I, I, I was going to make a couple of points on first. They they've certainly sort of asserted that everyone has to have priorities and there were past priorities. Um, that's, that's not something they put before the district court. Um, if they want to make sort of an argument, so, so the district court took, took, took evidence. Um, they were, they could introduce whatever evidence they wanted. The district court then took, um, approximately three months writing a, a extremely thorough 160 page opinion. Um, I think the first time any of this came into the case, um, or at least what they're relying on in the Court of Appeals, was evidence they put in after after the preliminary injunction um, for purposes of a stay. So what, what I would say, Your Honor, is if they want to sort of make an argument related to congressional acquiescence or uh, you know, literal impossibility or something like that, they can certainly put that evidence in front of the district court in, in further proceedings. But I, I, I just don't think it's there right now. Um, Second, Your Honor, we know from the, the Homan Declaration um, that we entered in response to some of this, that um, for various reasons, the, the United States has, has decreased its detention capacity. Um, they certainly have in both the in, as the Homan Declaration says, in both the Trump and the Obama administrations, ICE reprogrammed money. Um, ICE has canceled sort of contracts that they had um, with third parties to detain certain aliens. Um, and that has had the effect of cutting their detention capacity approximately in half. Um, as the Homan Declaration says, in 2019, ICE had um, an average of over 50,000 people detained a day and highs around 56,000 a day. And now they're saying something like 26. Um, so at a, at a bare minimum, Your Honor, whatever 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 sort of priorities they have to or having to come up with, they've... they've Decreased on purpose their changing capacity significantly. Um, so I, I don't. It, it's certainly a problem, Your Honor, that they have um, that they have sort of flouted the the priorities that Congress gave put in put into law. Um, and it's it's also a problem if if um, I'd refer the court to the opinion in v. Kim, um, where the Supreme Court recognizes that Congress was was writing 1226C and 123102 precisely to get at this problem, right? Um, Congress recognized in findings of fact that um, the old INS, which was responsible for this at the time, was was not detaining and not removing criminal aliens, and um, that that had various negative consequences, in part because of the extremely high recidivism rate, um, which Congress found at the time was in the 70s, um, and which evidence out of Tarrant County shows or at least tarrant county in texas is also in the 70s in this case um so so it's certainly a problem that they're that they're that they're ignoring congress's expressed instruction it's further well, in, a problem in castle rock
3: he- in castle rock the law was passed because there was evidence that law enforcement wasn't taking protective orders seriously enough so how do you get around castle rock and justice scalia's um point that there's a long tradition of mandatory arrest statutes that don't eliminate dis- enforcement discretion.
4: Oh, sure, sure, your honor. Several ways. Um, first, first, um, Castle Rock is is written against that backdrop. I mean, the court block quotes the sort of backdrop of enforcement discretion. Here is Damore tells us um, Congress was was explicitly trying to remove um, that discretion in in for these categories of aliens. Uh, second, your honor, Castle Rock comes back to the point. Uh, several times that, well, what's the, what are the, what are the police there to do if they don't know where the person is or um, can't find them or something like that? That's, that's not the case we have here as demonstrated by um, the declaration we have from TBCJ, which shows that um, ICE is again, affirmatively rescinding detainers and affirmatively rescinding detainers um, for some subset of, some subset of people who are,
3: you know, pretty serious criminals. So it seems going back to our earlier conversation, the state's position—and this is what I understood the state's position to be—is that statutes like 1226C do dictate that removal proceedings themselves have to be commenced, not just that people in those removal proceedings have to be detained. Is that? I'm, just, uh, I'm just still a little confused on what what your no, position. No,
4: is. no, Your Honor, I don't. I don't think that's what the, I don't think that's what the preliminary injunction we're up on requires. Um, I, I, also
3: don't, don't, that but if, there would just be a different if 1226C doesn't eliminate the government's discretion about who it wants to put in removal proceedings, then why is the memo problematic? I and mean, I thought the whole basis for the district court finding the memo to be, um, contrary to law, et cetera, is that it, it says the government has discretion in who it brings enforcement proceedings against. But you're saying... 1226C doesn't dictate that it brings enforcement proceedings against everyone.
4: Your Honor, I'm saying that 1226C um, does what it says, which is required that certain categories of criminal
3: aliens be detained. And does that also mean they have to be, you have to bring removal proceedings against them? Or can the, or or again, does it just say you have to be detained once that removal proceeding is initiated on the government's um, behalf?
4: You know, Your Honor, I, we're we're certainly aware that when it comes to um, when it comes to instituting removal proceedings, the government has you know various various levels of discretion. I would I would submit that for um, for these particular categories of criminal aliens, Congress certainly required that they be detained. Um, again, I I think twelve twenty six c says that twelve twenty six a at least very strongly suggests that the detention decision is upstream. Of the removal decision, um, where twelve twenty six A says that um, aliens may be detained pending that decision.
3: Um, again, your honor, I just—I see you're you're saying they have to be detained even if they're on. It's a separate issue. Even if the government doesn't want to remove them, they have to detain them. Is that your position,
4: your honor? This I I think that's I think the statute certainly says that they must be detained.
3: Um, you you can't detain someone without a removal proceeding. You can't just detain them without any immigration proceeding, right? Um, your honor, there there
4: might be there might be lots of things downstream of that decision. Um, but I think what the statute says is that they must be detained. I mean, one of the things
1: you've extremely to clear our time uh, is that the injunction itself at this stage doesn't require anybody to be removed. But it does seem to me your analysis does require us to think in those terms because that's the support it, it is or is not the support for the relief that you have gotten so far. Um, let me ask you, this: it seems to me, part of your argument on, on the limits on discretion uh, uh, that's relevant here is very evidence-based. Uh, you have these dueling affidavits to some extent, uh, Mr. Berg and Holman or, or whatever his Yeah, Mr. Holman, it seems to me that if the reality is, and I don't think we know what the reality is, That there are four or more people subject to these statutes, mandatory detention, then there's the ability for the U.S. government uh, to detain. And if that is the reality, you have also on top of that this enormous number of people at the border who may not be subject to these statutes in the first place, but also have to be dealt with. Isn't that part of what's going on here? And do we have enough evidence to really say? That, that there's a necessity for prioritization. The formality of it is not really the problem, uh, though it does, in a way, I'll say it's a little bit unattractive that the federal government uh, executive branch is saying we're not going to follow Congress on, on some of what it's saying. But if that's the reality, that this you have this numbers disconnect between the people subject to mandatory detention and, and the ability of, of the federal
4: government to do it, then there has to be some sort of prioritization. Um, a, a, a few points, Your Honor. Um, first, the the evidence in the record really clearly shows that, um, and this this is from the Home Declaration that they have purposely decreased their uh, detention capacity. Um, second, again, well, that means I, I, they
1: could I, do more. They may not be able to do everything that Congress is saying is mandatory, but they could do more. Is that basically what
4: that that much would support? Um, they they certainly could do more. Of, Again, to be clear, Your Honor, I don't think the, the preliminary injunction here requires that. Um, and I, I, I'd like to point quickly again to, uh, the, the district court's opinion isn't just based on um, the idea that this is, this is contrary to law. The injunction that the district court issued in the opinion of the company also said that, um, also said that the, the memoranda at issue were arbitrary, and capricious and procedural invalid because they didn't go through notice and comment. Um, and it's it's certainly true in APA proceedings, Your Honor, that um, even even if the even if the government can do something, it can't do it arbitrarily and capriciously or um, in a procedurally invalid way. I mean, this this comes from you know dozens of dozens of cases, including Supreme Court cases. Regents is the first one that comes to mind, where uh, the court says, you know, perhaps this was in the power of the government to do, it, but they didn't do it in the right way.
3: So that that those issues. Those APA really procedural case. requirements, like notice and comment only come to us if if it's not committed to agency discretion as, as an enforcement matter. Um, let me, I have one last question. Is there a Supreme Court case you can cite that has ordered law enforcement, both criminal and immigration I'm talking about, um, to institute proceedings against an individual or a class of individuals?
4: Um, what I would say, Your Honor, is that the Supreme Court has repeatedly described um, 1226c and 1231a2 is mandatory. Um, those are those are in a slightly different context.
3: Right. In all those cases, the 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 plaintiffs were were the detainees were bringing the challenge, and they were already in immigration proceedings. Right in all those cases, Jennings, Guzman,
4: right. Guzman Chavez, Preap, Demore. Um, it it's certainly true that those cases rose in a different posture, Your Honor. Uh, what I, what I would say is that uh, the the, the Supreme Court has said these provisions are mandatory in all of those cases. Um, and as recently as the Guzman-Chavez case, um, the United States appeared to agree, as the district court um, noted in um, somewhere around 68 of its opinion, uh, citing the Solicitor General's briefs in that
3: case. But, but so th- directly on my question, you know, I'm talking state, federal, criminal, immigration. Is there a Supreme Court case that has ordered the government to bring Institute proceedings that the government, um, had not already brought as in the posture of the case,
4: um, I'm not aware, I'm not aware of that, your honor. I, I, I wouldn't say that there, that there, I would hesitate to say that there are none. I'm certainly not aware of it. What, what I would say yeah. is that, that that's not what the district, that is expressly what the district court said. It's injunction is not requiring
1: one last run at this and I'm sorry Mr. Wilson you've you've given your best to respond to Judge Costa on this one of the things in the DAPA case uh, and it's Judge King in her dissent that that quotes it but it's from uh, the plaintiff Texas brief in the briefing on appeal plaintiffs refute the mistaken premise that this lawsuit challenges DHS's decision not to remove certain unauthorized aliens making clear that this lawsuit obviously just that one has never challenged any decision by executive to initiate a forego removal. It seems to me that we can't disconnect mandatory detention from what happens thereafter. If they're going to be detained. They can't just be housed for the rest of their lives. They have to be subject to mandatory to removal proceedings or released after some period of time. Why? Obviously, we're looking at a stay of a preliminary injunction here. We're not looking at the overall merits. Can we really ignore that though in, in our decision that if what you're seeking is an end to the kind of guided discretion uh in these memos on who is to be detained that necessarily means those people have to be subject to removal um'm it, it could your honor right I, I i
4: don't think it necess- i don't think it necessarily does i mean Okay. Again, the 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 government ex- may exercise its discretion downstream in various ways
1: to release. Uh, them. I mean, ultimately, they decide not to bring removal; they have to release them. So they exercise on the discretion just a little later. Um, that
4: would that would ultimately that would ultimately probably be true, Your Honor. I mean, I'd, I'd like to offer a couple of points. Um, first, we think that we think that these statutes are not discretionary, and second, um, as I mentioned to Judge Costa. Um, there, there are also um, arbitrary and capricious claims and uh, claims related to procedural invalidity in this case. Um, so, what I would say is, even 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 if the even if the court were to conclude that these priorities were um, viable under some set of circumstances, uh, we think that for the reasons the district court identified, uh, they're arbitrary and capricious and procedurally invalid in this circumstance. All right.
3: If, the, if these statutes are so clear and in, in being mandatory, um, why didn't Texas challenge the por- portions of the memo in the DAPA case that had similar enforcement priorities? I mean, I'm looking at Judge Smith's opinion. It says part of DAPA involves the secretary's decision not to enforce the immigration laws as to a class of what he deems to be low priority aliens. But importantly, the states have not challenged those priority levels And then it it was just the DAPA um, grant of DAPA. um. Um, You know, I think
4: I don't remember the precise stat. I don't recall the precise statutes at issue there. Um, What I would say is that DAPA DAPA was a very different case that was conferring status on um, I hundreds of thousands of individuals solely in Texas, Um, and you know. It, it, it's certainly true that that sometimes, Your Honor, you may you may pick the big thing in front of you rather than rather than picking rather than picking um, every possible thing you can read a claim on. I I certainly wasn't in, in this office at the time, and so I I'm not sure I could speak to our litigation strategy even if it weren't privileged.
1: Uh, one thing I didn't ask you, but I did ask your friend on the other screen, um, the nationwide injunction aspect of this. Uh, does this really fit? What was said in the DAPA case? Uh, is there, if, if you if you start from the proposition, which maybe you don't, the nationwide injunction should be by far the exception. Isn't this distinguishable from DAPA? Not that that means it would not be a nationwide injunction here. Just how do you defend a
4: nationwide injunction? Sure, Your Honor. I mean, I think I think what the DAPA case says is that uh, when it comes to immigration law. Congress um, and the courts have repeatedly said there should be a uniform a uniform application of the immigration laws. Um, I think also some of the some of the same uh, some of the same issues are at play here as in the DAPA case. Um, you know, when, once, people are, once individuals are released, they may be free to move against the states, um, free to move among the states that is. We um, really, have more of but, a problem for DAPA than it would be
1: here it seems to me moving around to take advantage of DAPA and the opportunities for people otherwise removable, is, was a much more significant uh, motivation than it would be here. And here is a matter of, of uh,
4: well, anyway, isn't that a distinction? Um, Your honor, I think there were probably, I think there were probably more individuals um, at issue in DAPA. Maybe the cost would have been different, um, but under the, under the theory of the theory of harm that we have, it's it's certainly, certainly it seems likely to me that um, people might move between states and then you know recid- recidivate in Texas um, or create costs for the or create medical costs or something like that for the state of Texas as we as we um, argued before the district court. All right,
1: thank you. Uh, you have time for a rebuttal, Ms. Harrington.
0: Thank you so much. I'd like to start first. Um, Judge Costa, you asked about the fourth case out there. And I'm sorry, I'd forgotten the name. It's called it's in the Southern District of Texas called Coe versus Biden, a suit brought by a sheriff and an organization that purports to represent ICE employees. And there's no injunction yet in that case. Um,
1: Are you so, saying that's answer his question? That's the only other case?
0: Yeah, other than the um, the Ninth Circuit and 11th Circuit cases that he identified Yeah, the Florida and the um, Arizona Montana case. Uh, I just have a few points I'd like to make on rebuttal, if I can. Um, Mr. Wilson says that the memo, that the case basically has nothing to do with constraining the agency's discretion about initiating enforcement proceedings, removal proceedings, excuse me. But in fact, the memo does direct priority, you know, sort of the exercise of discretion towards the priority groups with respect to initiating removal proceedings. So excuse me, while the memo is enjoined, it does sort of constrain the agency's discretion about how to direct those efforts. I also want to emphasize the number of places-
1: there. Where are you talking about, is this the February memo? Yes. And where are you saying there's this enforcement, just a weekly, well less weekly reporting.
0: So if you look at um, page 170 of the addendum to our stay motion, okay, it talks about all the different decisions that are affected by the memos. Okay, i look at thank you. Okay. Um, so I just want to emphasize the number of different places in these removal proceedings, sort of in, in the chain of events that happen, where there is enforcement discretion. There's discretion about whether to initiate enforcement proceedings by issuing a notice to appear. There's then discretion about whether to make an arrest. The, generally when a notice to appear is issued, there hasn't been a determination made about whether someone falls within section 1226C, because under the, you know, the categorical approach and the modified categorical approach, it's not an easy determination to make always. And sometimes there are facts that are unknowable before you have someone, because 1226C, for example, covers people who've ever been addicted to drugs since entering the country. That's not something that the agencies would necessarily know about. So once they initiate removal proceedings, there's discussion about whether to make an arrest. Then there's discussion about, um, you know, all along the way, the Supreme Court emphasized in Reno versus um, AA. AD, AADC, um, that at any point along the way, the agency has great discussion about whether to abandon the course of, um, F, of attempting to remove someone. Um, and so the, the memo that's been enjoined directs discretion and prioritization with respect to all of those decisions, and, um, and that's a serious harm that's being inflicted on the government while that's enjoined because they can't prioritize public safety, national security, and border security. I just want to point out that the states have no answer to Heckler versus Cheney, Chicago versus Morales, and Castle Rock versus Gonzales. Mr. Wilson says, well, there Congress was trying that in Castle Rock, Congress, the, excuse me, the state legislature was acting against the background of non-enforcement. But here Congress is trying to constrain that discretion. But the only thing he can point to is the use of the word shall, which was also used in the statute at issue in Castle Rock. So but doesn't he not- also
1: have some evidence from the congressional background to the extent that's relevant? There's a difference opinion on that. This was an effort to require INS to tighten up and, and to be more uh, aggressive in, in, in uh, detention and removal. It, Isn't that part of the backstory for the uh, the new language?
0: So, I mean, Congress has, in many ways, expanded the class of people who are subject to removal. And in many of those provisions, it uses the word shall also, in Section Twelve Twenty Five, it uses the word "shall" about removing people who are attempting to cross the border.
1: Okay, um, you may be getting to it, but all my my only point is, it seems to me there is something that Mister Wilson has, and, and the briefing does have, that Congress was concerned about not being aggressive enough in, in removing people, and they were. And so, this legislation with "shall" was intended to stop that.
0: But not Congress is make
1: it one hundred percent. So, I mean, that's all I'm asking, I'm not saying it wins yeah. the case for it. but isn't that in the legislative backstory?
0: So, I mean, two things. As Judge Costa points out, that was also true in Castle Rock, and that wasn't enough. Just using the word "shall," Congress operate, you know, legislative. Did you say yes? Is, is the answer
1: to that yes, but that is part of the legislative history.
0: That is part of the legislative history, but I'm saying that's not enough to signal that Congress wanted to we take. Start away with yes, and then move. <laughs> yes, but yeah, <laughs> I apologize. That's not enough to overcome this background presumption of non-reviewability of enforcement discretion decisions. I mean, the larger context is that Congress has never come close to appropriating enough money to enforce all of these shell provisions. And Mr. Wilson keeps saying that we intentionally reduced our bed capacity. We don't, we don't agree with that. Many contractors have canceled their contracts. There's a pandemic that reduces our capacity. But even if overnight we could magically quintuple our bed space, which we can't do, but even if we could, we would still be orders of magnitude away from the number being able to house the number of people who are covered by 1231A2 and 1226C.
1: What is the necessary predicate for for the discretion that that you're talking about? Obviously, you responded to the evidence Mr. Wilson had from the Holman affidavit, but if in fact there was evidence at some point, not here yet, that ICE could do more, and part of the effect of these priorities is this sort of an announcement somewhere within the administration that some of these people should not be detained, not announcement. It's driven by that, which would probably never come out in evidence. Isn't a necessary predicate for this is that DHS, ICE, whoever can't do more than it's doing as opposed to, it wants to pull back from removing certain kinds of people who they could remove. Um, it's,
0: it is so really is the evidence
1: you're talking about essential to your argument? that the DHS cannot do more?
0: Well, what I would say is the point of the priorities is not that ICE and DHS should do less. It's a question of with what they have, where should they direct their energies, okay? And so, um, and, and we've seen the results. 2,000 more people in a six-month period with aggravated felony convictions were removed with the priorities in place than without the priorities in place, okay? So it's about targeting what we view as the greatest threats to our country to the border, to the national security, and to public safety. I just, if I can take one second and address the reporting requirements that Judge Graves asked about. Um, it's true that the district court said in response to the stay motion that those were not part of the injunction, but it's also true, as you suggest, that they do seem like discovery orders, which a judge cannot order. That's something that, the, you know, without the request of a party, at least. Um, and so we're not aware of any authority that the district court has to order the government to comply with these sort of reporting requirements. And so we would ask that those be stayed as part of the, of any stay of the injunction. What is Michael, hearing one,
3: one, one, oh, Go ahead, Judge Costa. Oh, this turn. is just a quick question. You mentioned at the outset that new guidance is coming. And I think way back in the spring, they said it was coming soon. Now I hear the end of September. I mean, what, I, I know these things, you're not in control of them, but really what, do you, what is the best you know about when that new guidance is coming?
0: It's end of September. My agency friends understand that is not a deadline we can blow. I'm sure you understand there's been a lot going on with Afghanistan and other things going on at the border and the pandemic situation that has created more work. Rec- I'm not giving excuses, just as an explanation. That's why it's taking longer than we've expected. But so end of September, we view as a firm deadline to have the final priorities out.
1: I think it was a February memo said 90 days, you would remember better. So anyway, these things slide.
0: Yes, no, I, I've emphasized with my friends that this is a firm deadline, so.
1: Uh, a question I have about that, the. Uh, initial order, follow-up order—I forget—which said that if the if the injunction stays in, on the predicate that the injunction stays in place, that by September three, you are to to, to indicate uh, uh, the defendants uh, were to indicate exactly how they would be making these enforcement decisions. That's been postponed uh, until October, I suppose, but that still is a requirement to that is a requirement. how you would how you'd be making these decisions.
0: Right. The judge ordered us to tell him like sort of what, basically what priorities we would use, what legal rules we think would apply. There will be new priorities, the final priorities before October. So I think that will guide what we tell the district court at that point.
1: Okay. Well, thank you both for your assistance to us today. I have one final question from Ms. Harrington that is a concern to nobody else who is on the screen right now. What room are you in? That looks like a main justice room and one of those forgotten attorney generals in the background.
0: Perhaps one that you've been in before, Judge Suffolk. This is the civil division main conference room. So yeah, I believe well, that's what that some time was.
1: Here. Yes. <laughs> behind. You used to go into the AAG's office, I suppose. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. Your old stomping grounds.
1: Well, I haven't stopped there in a while. Don't worry, Mr. Wilson. I have no favoritism to either side here.
4: Thank you both. No, 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 <laughs> <Your Honor. laughs>
1: we are adjourned.
0: Thank you.